Section 11 of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Lane. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 5. The Knowledge of God Conspicuous in the Creation and Continual Government of the World. This chapter consists of two parts. One, the former, which occupies the first ten sections, divides all the works of God into two great classes, and elucidates the knowledge of God as displayed in each class. The one class is treated of in the first six, the other in the four following sections. Two, the latter part of the chapter shows that in consequence of the extreme stupidity of men, those manifestations of God, however perspicuous, lead to no useful result. This latter part, which commences at the eleventh section, is continued to the end of the chapter. Sections 1. The invisible and incomprehensible essence of God, to a certain extent, made visible in his works. 2. This declared by the first class of works, viz. the admirable motions of the heavens and the earth, the symmetry of the human body, and the connection of its parts, in short, the various objects which are presented to every eye. 3. This more especially manifested in the structure of the human body. 4. The shameful ingratitude of disregarding God, who in such a variety of ways is manifested within us the still more shameful ingratitude of contemplating the endowments of the soul without ascending to him who gave them. No objection can be founded on any supposed organism in the soul. 5. The powers and actions of the soul, a proof of its separate existence from the body. Proofs of the soul's immortality. Objection that the whole world is quickened by one soul. Reply to the objection. Its impiety. 6. Conclusion from what has been said, viz., that the omnipotence, eternity, and goodness of God may be learned from the first class of works, i.e., those which are in accordance with the ordinary course of nature. 7. The second class of works, viz., those above the ordinary course of nature, afforded clear evidence of the perfections of God, especially His goodness, justice, and mercy. 8. Also his providence, power, and wisdom. 9. Proofs and illustrations of the divine majesty. The use of them, viz. the acquisition of divine knowledge in combination with true piety. 10. The tendency of the knowledge of God to inspire the righteous with the hope of future life, and remind the wicked of the punishments reserved for them. Its tendency, moreover, to keep alive in the hearts of the righteous a sense of the divine goodness. 11. The second part of the chapter, which describes the stupidity both of learned and unlearned in ascribing the whole order of things and the admirable arrangements of divine providence to fortune. 12. Hence polytheism, with all its abominations and the endless and irreconcilable opinions of the philosophers concerning God. 13. All guilty of revolt from God, corrupting pure religion, 
either by following general custom or the impious consent of antiquity. 14. Though irradiated by the wondrous glories of creation, we cease not to follow our own ways. 15. Our conduct altogether inexcusable, the dullness of perception being attributable to ourselves while we are fully reminded of the true path, both by the structure and government of the world. Since the perfection of blessedness consists in the knowledge of God, he has been pleased in order that none might be excluded from the means of obtaining felicity, not only to deposit in our minds that seed of religion of which we have already spoken, but so to manifest his perfections in the whole structure of the universe, and daily place himself in our view, that we cannot open our eyes without being compelled to behold him. His essence, indeed, is incomprehensible, utterly transcending all human thought. But on each of his works, his glory is engraven in characters so bright, so distinct, and so illustrious, that none, however dull and illiterate, can plead ignorance as their excuse. Hence, with perfect truth, the psalmist exclaims, He covereth himself with light as with a garment. Psalm 104, verse 2. As if he had said that God for the first time was arrayed in visible attire when, in the creation of the world, he displayed those glorious banners on which, to whatever side we turn, we behold his perfections visibly portrayed. In the same place, the psalmist aptly compares the expanded heavens to his royal tent, and says, He layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, maketh the clouds his chariot, and walketh upon the wings of the wind, sending forth the winds and lightnings as his swift messengers. And because the glory of his power and wisdom is more refulgent in the firmament, it is frequently designated as his palace. And first, wherever you turn your eyes, there is no portion of the world, however minute, that does not exhibit at least some sparks of beauty. While it is impossible to contemplate the vast and beautiful fabric as it extends around without being overwhelmed by the immense weight of glory, hence the author of the epistle to the Hebrews elegantly describes the visible worlds as images of the invisible. Hebrews 11.3 The elegant structure of the world serving us as a kind of mirror in which we may behold God, though otherwise invisible. For the same reason, the psalmist attributes language to celestial objects, a language which all nations understand. Psalm 19.1 The manifestation of the Godhead being too clear to escape the notice of any people, however obtuse. The Apostle Paul, stating this still more clearly, says, That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Romans 1.20 In attestation of his wondrous wisdom, both the heavens and the earth present us with innumerable proofs, not only those more recondite proofs, which astronomy, medicine, and all the natural sciences are designed to illustrate, but proofs which force themselves on the notice of the most illiterate peasant, who cannot open his eyes without beholding them. It is true, indeed, that those who are more or less intimately acquainted with those liberal studies are thereby assisted and enabled to obtain a deeper insight into the secret workings of divine wisdom. No man, 
however, though he be ignorant of these, is incapacitated for discerning such proofs of creative wisdom as may well cause him to break forth in admiration of the Creator. To investigate the motions of the heavenly bodies, to determine their positions, measure their distances, and ascertain their properties demands skill and a more careful examination. And where these are so employed, as the providence of God is thereby more fully unfolded, so it is reasonable to suppose that the mind takes a loftier flight, and obtains brighter views of his glory. Still, none who have the use of their eyes can be ignorant of the divine skill manifested so conspicuously in the endless variety, yet distinct and well-ordered array of the heavenly host. And therefore, it is plain that the Lord has furnished every man with abundant proofs of his wisdom. The same is true in regard to the structure of the human frame, to determine the connection of its parts, its symmetry and beauty with the skill of a Galen requires singular acuteness, and yet all men acknowledge that the human body bears on its face such proofs of ingenious contrivance as are sufficient to proclaim the admirable wisdom of its maker. Hence certain of the philosophers have not improperly called man a microcosm, miniature world, as being a rare specimen of divine power, wisdom, and goodness and containing within himself wonders sufficient to occupy our minds, if we are willing so to employ them. Paul, accordingly, after reminding the Athenians that they might feel after God and find him, immediately adds that he is not far from every one of us. Acts 17.27 Every man having within himself undoubted evidence of the heavenly grace by which he lives and moves and has his being. But if in order to apprehend God, it is unnecessary to go farther than ourselves. What excuse can there be for the sloth of any man who will not take the trouble of descending into himself that he may find him? For the same reason, too, David, after briefly celebrating the wonderful name and glory of God as everywhere displayed, immediately exclaims, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And again, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. Psalm 8 2 and 4. Thus he declares not only that the human race are a bright mirror of the Creator's works, but that infants hanging on their mother's breasts have tongues eloquent enough to proclaim his glory without the aid of other orators. Accordingly, he hesitates not to bring them forward as fully instructed to refute the madness of those who, from devilish pride, would fain extinguish the name of God. Hence, too, the passage which Paul quotes from Aratus, We are his offspring, Acts 17.28. The excellent gifts with which he has endued us, attesting that he is our Father. In the same way also, from natural instinct and, as it were, at the dictation of experience, heathen poets called him the Father of men. No one indeed will voluntarily and willingly devote himself to the service of God unless he has previously tasted his paternal love, and has been thereby allured to love and reverence him. But herein appears the shameful ingratitude of men, though they have in their own persons a factory where innumerable operations of God are carried on, and a magazine stored with treasures of inestimable value. Instead of bursting forth in his praise as they are bound to do, they, on the contrary, are more inflated and swelled with pride. 
They feel how wonderfully God is working in them, and their own experience tells them of the vast variety of gifts which they owe to his liberality. Whether they will or not, they cannot but know that these are proofs of his Godhead, and yet they inwardly suppress them. They have no occasion to go farther than themselves, provided they do not, by appropriating as their own, that which has been given them from heaven, put out the light intended to exhibit God clearly to their minds. At this day, however, the earth sustains on her bosom many monster minds, minds which are not afraid to employ the seed of deity deposited in human nature as a means of suppressing the name of God. Can anything be more detestable than this madness in man, who, finding God a hundred times both in his body and his soul, makes his excellence in this respect a pretext for denying that there is a God? He will not say that chance has made him differ from the brutes that perish, but substituting nature as the architect of the universe, he suppresses the name of God. The swift motions of the soul, its noble faculties and rare endowments, bespeak the agency of God in a manner which would make the suppression of it impossible. Did not the Epicureans, like so many Cyclops, use it as a vantage ground from which to wage more audacious war with God? Are so many treasures of heavenly wisdom employed in the guidance of such a worm as man, and shall the whole universe be denied the same privilege? To hold that there are organs in the soul corresponding to each of its faculties is so far from obscuring the glory of God that it rather illustrates it. Let Epicurus tell what concourse of atoms, cooking meat and drink, can form one portion into refuse and another portion into blood and make all the members separately perform their office as carefully as if they were so many souls acting with common consent in the superintendence of one body. But my business at present is not with that sty. I wish rather to deal with those who, led away by absurd subtleties, are inclined by giving an indirect turn to that frigid doctrine of Aristotle, to employ it for the purpose both of disproving the immortality of the soul and robbing God of his rights. Under the pretext that the faculties of the soul are organized, they chain it to the body as if it were incapable of a separate existence, while they endeavor, as much as in them lies, by pronouncing eulogiums on nature, to suppress the name of God. But there is no ground for maintaining that the powers of the soul are confined to the performance of bodily functions. What has the body to do with your measuring the heavens, counting the number of the stars, ascertaining their magnitudes, their relative distances, the rate at which they move, and the orbits which they describe? I deny not that astronomy has its use. All I mean to show is that these lofty investigations are not conducted by organized symmetry, but by the faculties of the soul itself, apart altogether from the body. The single example I have given will suggest many others to the reader. The swift and versatile movements of the soul in glancing from heaven to earth, connecting the future with the past, retaining the remembrance of former years, nay, forming creations of its own, its skill, moreover, in making astonishing discoveries and inventing so many wonderful arts, are sure indications of the agency of God in man. What shall we say of its activity when the body is asleep, its many revolving thoughts, its many useful suggestions, its many solid arguments 
nay, its presentiment of things yet to come. What shall we say but that man bears about him the stamp of immortality which can never be effaced? But how is it possible for man to be divine and yet not acknowledge his creator? Shall we, by means of a power of judging implanted in our breast, distinguish between justice and injustice, and yet there be no judge in heaven? Shall some remains of intelligence continue with us in a sleep, and yet no God keep watch in heaven? Shall we be deemed the inventors of so many arts and useful properties that God may be defrauded of his praise, though experience tells us plainly enough that whatever we possess is dispensed to us in unequal measures by another hand? The talk of certain persons concerning a secret inspiration quickening the whole world is not only silly, but altogether profane. Such persons are delighted with the following celebrated passage of Virgil. Know first that heaven and earth's compacted frame, and flowing waters and the starry flame, and both the radiant lights, one common soul, inspires and feeds and animates the whole. This active mind, infused through all the space, unites and mingles with the mighty mass, hence men and beasts the breath of life obtain, and birds of air and monsters of the main. The ethereal vigor is in all the same, and every soul is filled with equal flame. The meaning of all this is that the world which was made to display the glory of God is its own creator, for the same poet has in another place adopted a view common to both Greeks and Latins. Hence to the bee some sages have assigned a portion of the God and heavenly mind, for God goes forth and spreads throughout the whole, heaven, earth, and sea, the universal soul. Each at its birth, from him all beings share, both man and brute, the breath of vital air. To him return, and loosed from earthly chain, fly whence they sprung, and rest in God again. Spurn at the grave, and fearless of decay, Dwell in high heaven, art star the ethereal way. Here we see how far that genuine speculation of a universal mind animating and invigorating the world is fitted to beget and foster piety in our minds. We have a still clearer proof of this in the profane verses which the licentious Lucretius has written as a deduction from the same principle. The plain object is to form an unsubstantial deity and thereby banish the true God, whom we ought to fear and worship. I admit indeed that the expression, Nature is God, may be piously used, if dictated by a pious mind. But it is inaccurate and harsh, nature being more properly the order which has been established by God. In matters which are so very important, and in regard to which special reverence is due, it does harm to confound the deity with the inferior operations of his hands. Let each of us, therefore, in contemplating his own nature, remember that there is one God who governs all natures, and in governing, wishes us to have respect to himself, to make him the object of our faith, worship, and adoration. Nothing indeed can be more preposterous than to enjoy those noble endowments which bespeak the divine presence within us, and to neglect him who, of his own good pleasure, bestows them upon us. In regard to his power, how glorious the manifestations by which he urges us to the contemplation of himself, 
unless indeed we pretend not to know whose energy it is that by a word sustains the boundless fabric of the universe, at one time making heaven reverberate with thunder, sending forth the scorching lightning, and setting the whole atmosphere in a blaze, at another causing the raging tempest to blow, and forthwith in one moment, when it so pleases him, making a perfect calm keeping the sea, which seems constantly threatening the earth with devastation, suspended, as it were, in air, at one time, lashing it into fury by the impetuosity of the winds, at another, appeasing its rage and stilling all its waves. Here we might refer to those glowing descriptions of divine power as illustrated by natural events which occur throughout Scripture, but more especially in the book of Job and the prophecies of Isaiah. These, however, I purposely omit, because a better opportunity of introducing them will be found when I come to treat the scriptural account of the creation. I only wish to observe here that this method of investigating the divine perfections, by tracing the lineaments of his countenance as shadowed forth in the firmament and on the earth, is common both to those within and to those without the pale of the church. From the power of God we are naturally led to consider his eternity, since that from which all other things derive their origin must necessarily be self-existent and eternal. Moreover, if it be asked what cause induced him to create all things at first, and now inclines him to preserve them, we shall find that there could be no other cause than his own goodness. But if this is the only cause, nothing more should be required to draw forth our love towards him. Every creature as the psalmist reminds us, participating in his mercy, his tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. In the second class of God's works, namely those which are above the ordinary course of nature, the evidence of his perfections are in every respect equally clear. For in conducting the affairs of men, he so arranges the course of his providence as daily to declare by the clearest manifestations, that though all are in innumerable ways the partakers of his bounty, the righteous are the special objects of his favor, the wicked and profane the special objects of his severity. It is impossible to doubt his punishment of crimes, while at the same time he, in no unequivocal manner, declares that he is the protector and even the avenger of innocence, by shedding blessings on the good, helping their necessities, soothing and solacing their griefs, relieving their sufferings, and in all ways providing for their safety. And though he often permits the guilty to exult for a time with impunity, and the innocent to be driven to and fro in adversity, nay, even to be wickedly and iniquitously oppressed, this ought not to produce any uncertainty as to the uniform justice of all his procedure. Nay, an opposite inference should be drawn. When any one crime calls forth visible manifestations of his anger, it must be because he hates all crimes, and, on the other hand, his leaving many crimes unpunished only proves that there is a judgment in reserve, when the punishment now delayed shall be inflicted. In like manner, how richly does he supply us with the means of contemplating his mercy, when, as frequently happens, he continues to visit miserable sinners with unwearied kindness, until he subdues their depravity and woos them back 
with more than a parent's fondness. To this purpose, the psalmist, Psalm 107, mentioning how God in a wondrous manner often brings sudden and unexpected succor to the miserable when almost on the brink of despair, whether in protecting them when they stray in deserts, and at length leading them back into the right path, or supplying them with food when famishing for want, or delivering them when captive from iron fetters and foul dungeons, or conducting them safe into harbor after shipwreck, or bringing them back from the gates of death by curing their diseases, or after burning up the fields with heat and drought, fertilizing them with the river of his grace, or exalting the meanest of the people, and casting down the mighty from their lofty seats. The psalmist, after bringing forward examples of this description, infers that those things which men call fortuitous events are so many proofs of divine providence, and more especially of paternal clemency, furnishing grounds of joy to the righteous, and at the same time stopping the mouths of the ungodly. But as the greater part of mankind, enslaved by error, walk blindfold in this glorious theater, he exclaims that it is a rare and singular wisdom to meditate carefully on these works of God, which many who seem most sharp-sighted in other respects behold without profit. It is indeed true that the brightest manifestation of divine glory finds not one genuine spectator among a hundred. Still, neither his power nor his wisdom is shrouded in darkness. His power is strikingly displayed when the rage of the wicked, to all appearance irresistible, is crushed in a single moment, their arrogance subdued, their strongest bulwarks overthrown, their armor dashed to pieces, their strength broken, their schemes defeated without an effort, and audacity which set itself above the heavens is precipitated to the lowest depths of the earth. On the other hand, the poor are raised up out of the dust, and the needy lifted out of the dunghill. Psalm 113, 7. The oppressed and afflicted are rescued in extremity, the despairing animated with hope, the unarmed defeat the armed, the few the many, the weak the strong. The excellence of the divine wisdom is manifested in distributing everything in due season, confounding the wisdom of the world, and taking the wise in their own craftiness. 1 Corinthians 3.19 In short, conducting all things in perfect accordance with reason. We see there is no need of a long and laborious train of argument in order to obtain proofs which illustrate and assert the divine majesty. The few which we have merely touched show them to be so immediately within our reach in every quarter that we can trace them with the eye or point to them with the finger. And here we must observe again that the knowledge of God which we are invited to cultivate is not that which, resting satisfied with empty speculation, only flutters in the brain but a knowledge which will prove substantial and fruitful wherever it is duly perceived and rooted in the heart. The Lord is manifested by his perfections. When we feel their power within us and are conscious of their benefits, the knowledge must impress us much more vividly than if we merely imagined a God whose presence we never felt. Hence it is obvious that in seeking God, the most direct path and the fittest method is not to attempt with presumptuous curiosity to pry into his essence, which is rather to be adored than minutely discussed, 
but to contemplate him in his works, by which he draws near, becomes familiar, and in a manner communicates himself to us. To this the apostle referred when he said that we need not go far in search of him, Acts 17.27, because by the continual working of his power he dwells in every one of us. Accordingly, David, Psalm 145, after acknowledging that his greatness is unsearchable, proceeds to enumerate his works, declaring that his greatness will thereby be unfolded. It therefore becomes us also diligently to prosecute that investigation of God which so enraptures the soul with admiration as at the same time to make an efficacious impression on it. And as Augustine expresses it in Psalm 144, since we are unable to comprehend him, and are, as it were, overpowered by his greatness, our proper course is to contemplate his works, and so refresh ourselves with his goodness. By the knowledge thus acquired, we ought not only to be stimulated to worship God, but also aroused and elevated to the hope of future life. For, observing that the manifestations which the Lord gives both of his mercy and severity are only begun and incomplete, we ought to infer that these are doubtless only a prelude to higher manifestations of which the full display is reserved for another state. Conversely, when we see the righteous brought into affliction by the ungodly, assailed with injuries, overwhelmed with calumnies, and lacerated by insult and contumely, while on the contrary the wicked flourish, prosper, acquire ease and honor, and all these with impunity, we ought forthwith to infer that there will be a future life in which iniquity shall receive its punishment, and righteousness its reward. Moreover, when we observe that the Lord often lays his chastening rod on the righteous, we may the more surely conclude that far less will the unrighteous ultimately escape the scourges of his anger. Were all in sin now visited with open punishment, it might be thought that nothing was reserved for the final judgment. And, on the other hand, were no sin now openly punished, it might be supposed there was no divine providence. It must be acknowledged, therefore, that in each of the works of God, and more especially in the whole of them taken together, the divine perfections are delineated as in a picture, and the whole human race thereby invited and allured to acquire the knowledge of God and in consequence of this knowledge, true and complete felicity. Moreover, while his perfections are thus most vividly displayed, the only means of ascertaining their practical operation and tendency is to descend into ourselves, and consider how it is that the Lord there manifests his wisdom, power, and energy, how he there displays his justice, goodness, and mercy. For although David... Psalm 92, 6, justly complains of the extreme infatuation of the ungodly in not pondering the deep counsels of God, as exhibited in the government of the human race. What he elsewhere says, Psalm 40, is most true, that the wonders of the divine wisdom in this respect are more in number than the hairs of our head. But I leave this topic at present, as it will be more fully considered afterwards in its own place. Bright, however, as is the manifestation which God gives both of himself and his immortal kingdom in the mirror of his works, 
So great is our stupidity, so dull are we in regard to these bright manifestations, that we derive no benefit from them. For in regard to the fabric and admirable arrangement of the universe, how few of us are there who, in lifting our eyes to the heavens, or looking abroad on the various regions of the earth, ever think of the Creator? Do we not rather overlook Him, and sluggishly content ourselves with a view of His works? And then in regard to supernatural events, though these are occurring every day, how few are there who ascribe them to the ruling providence of God? How many who imagine that they are casual results, produced by the blind evolutions of the wheel of chance? Even when under the guidance and direction of these events, we are in a manner forced to the contemplation of God, a circumstance which all must occasionally experience, and are thus led to form some impressions of deity, we immediately fly off to carnal dreams and depraved fictions, and so by our vanity corrupt heavenly truth. This far indeed we differ from each other, in that every one appropriates to himself some peculiar error, but we are all alike in this, that we substitute monstrous fiction for the one living and true God, a disease not confined to obtuse and vulgar minds, but affecting the noblest, and those who in other respects are singularly acute. How lavishly in this respect have the whole body of philosophers betrayed their stupidity and want of sense, to say nothing of the others, whose absurdities are of a still grosser description. How completely does Plato, the soberest and most religious of them all, lose himself in his round globe? What must be the case with the rest, when the leaders, who ought to have set them an example, commit such blunders, and labor under such hallucinations? In like manner, while the government of the world places the doctrine of providence beyond dispute, the practical result is the same as if it were believed that all things were carried hither and thither at the caprice of chance. So prone are we to vanity and error. I am still referring to the most distinguished of the philosophers, and not to the common herd, whose madness in profaning the truth of God exceeds all bounds. Hence that immense flood of error with which the whole world is overflowed. Every individual mind being a kind of labyrinth, it is not wonderful, not only that each nation has adopted a variety of fictions, but that almost every man has had his own God. To the darkness of ignorance have been added presumption and wantonness, and hence there is scarcely an individual to be found without some idol or phantom as a substitute for deity. Like water gushing forth from a large and copious spring, immense crowds of gods have issued from the human mind, every man giving himself full license and devising some peculiar form of divinity to meet his own views. It is unnecessary here to attempt a catalogue of the superstitions with which the world was overspread. The thing were endless, and the corruptions themselves, though not a word should be said, furnish abundant evidence of the blindness of the human mind. I say nothing of the rude and illiterate vulgar, but among the philosophers who attempted by reason and learning to pierce the heavens, what shameful disagreement! The higher any one was endued with genius, and the more he was polished by science and art, the more specious was the coloring which he gave to his opinions. All these, however, 
if examined more closely, will be found to be vain show. The Stoics plumed themselves on their acuteness when they said that the various names of God might be extracted from all the parts of nature, and yet that his unity was not thereby divided, as if we were not already too prone to vanity, and had no need of being presented with an endless multiplicity of gods to lead us further and more grossly into error. The mystic theology of the Egyptians shows how sedulously they labored to be thought rational on this subject, and perhaps, at the first glance, some show of probability might deceive the simple and unwary, but never did any mortal devise a scheme by which religion was not foully corrupted. This endless variety and confusion emboldened the Epicureans, and other gross despisers of piety, to cut off all sense of God, for when they saw that the wisest contradicted each other, they hesitated not to infer from their dissensions, and from the frivolous and absurd doctrines of each, that men foolishly, and to no purpose, brought torment upon themselves by searching for a god, there being none, and they thought this inference safe, because it was better at once to deny God altogether than to feign uncertain gods, and thereafter engage in quarrels without end. They indeed argue absurdly, or rather weave a cloak for their impiety out of human ignorance, although ignorance surely cannot derogate from the prerogatives of God. But since all confess that there is no topic on which such difference exists, both among learned and unlearned, the proper inference is that the human mind, which thus errs in inquiring after God, is dull and blind in heavenly mysteries. Some praise the answer of Simonides, who, being asked by King Hero what God was, asked a day to consider. When the king next day repeated the question, he asked two days, and after repeatedly doubling the number of days, at length replied, The longer I consider, the darker the subject appears. He no doubt wisely suspended his opinion when he did not see clearly. Still his answer shows that if men are only naturally taught, instead of having any distinct, solid, or certain knowledge, they fasten only on contradictory principles, and in consequence, worship an unknown God. Hence we must hold that whosoever adulterates pure religion, and this must be the case with all who cling to their own views, make a departure from the one God. No doubt they will allege that they have a different intention, but it is of little consequence what they intend or persuade themselves to believe, since the Holy Spirit pronounces all to be apostates, who in the blindness of their minds substitute demons in the place of God. For this reason, Paul declares that the Ephesians were without God, Ephesians 2.12, until they had learned from the gospel what it is to worship the true God. Nor must this be restricted to one people only, since in another place he declares in general that all men became vain in their imaginations, after the majesty of the Creator was manifested to them in the structure of the world. Accordingly, in order to make way for the only true God, he condemns all the gods celebrated among the Gentiles as lying and false, leaving no deity anywhere but in Mount Zion, where the special knowledge of God was professed. Habakkuk 2, 18 and 20. 
among the Gentiles in the time of Christ, the Samaritans undoubtedly made the nearest approach to true piety, yet we hear from his own mouth that they worshipped they knew not what. John 4.22 Whence it follows that they were deluded by vain errors. In short, though all did not give way to gross vice or rush headlong into open idolatry, there was no pure and authentic religion founded merely on common belief. A few individuals may not have gone all insane lengths with the vulgar. Still, Paul's declaration remains true, that the wisdom of God was not apprehended by the princes of this world. 1 Corinthians 2.8 But if the most distinguished wandered in darkness, what shall we say of the refuse? No wonder, therefore, that all worship of man's device is repudiated by the Holy Spirit as degenerate. Any opinion which man can form in heavenly mysteries, though it may not beget a long train of errors, is still the parent of error. And though nothing worse should happen, even this is no light sin, to worship an unknown God at random. Of this sin, however, we hear from our Savior's own mouth, John 4.22, that all are guilty who have not been taught out of the law who the God is whom they ought to worship. Nay, even Socrates in Xenophon, memorabilia, lauds the response of Apollo enjoining every man to worship the gods according to the rites of his country, and the particular practice of his own city. But what right have mortals thus to decide of their own authority in a matter which is far above the world? Or who can so acquiesce in the will of his forefathers, or the decrees of the people, as unhesitatingly to receive a god at their hands? Every one will adhere to his own judgment, sooner than submit to the dictation of others. Since, therefore, in regulating the worship of God, the custom of a city, or the consent of antiquity, is a too feeble and fragile bond of piety, it remains that God himself must bear witness to himself from heaven. In vain for us, therefore, does creation exhibit so many bright lamps lighted up to show forth the glory of its author. Though they beam upon us from every quarter, they are altogether insufficient of themselves to lead us into the right path. Some sparks, undoubtedly, they do throw out, but these are quenched before they can give forth a brighter effulgence. Wherefore, the Apostle, in the very place where he says that the worlds are images of invisible things, adds that it is by faith we understand that they were framed by the word of God. Hebrews 11.3 Thereby intimating that the invisible Godhead is indeed represented by such displays, but that we have no eyes to perceive it until they are enlightened through faith by internal revelation from God. When Paul says that that which may be known of God is manifested by the creation of the world, he does not mean such a manifestation as may be comprehended by the wit of man, Romans 1.19. On the contrary, he shows that it has no further effect than to render us inexcusable, Acts 17.27. And though he says elsewhere that we have not far to seek for God, inasmuch as he dwells within us, he shows in another passage to what extent this nearness to God is availing. God, says he, in times past, suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good 
and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, 16, and 17. But though God is not left without a witness, while with numberless varied acts of kindness he woos men to the knowledge of himself, yet they cease not to follow their own way. In other words, deadly errors. But though we are deficient in natural powers, which might enable us to rise to a pure and clear knowledge of God, still, as the dullness which prevents us is within, there is no room for excuse. We cannot plead ignorance without being at the same time convicted by our own consciences, both of sloth and ingratitude. It were indeed a strange defense for man to pretend that he has no ears to hear the truth, while dumb creatures have voices loud enough to declare it, to allege that he is unable to see that which creatures without eyes demonstrate, to excuse himself on the ground of weakness of mind, while all creatures without reason are able to teach. Wherefore, when we wander and go astray, we are justly shut out from every species of excuse, because all things point to the right path. But while man must bear the guilt of corrupting the seed of divine knowledge so wondrously deposited in his mind, and preventing it from bearing good and genuine fruit, it is still most true that we are not sufficiently instructed by that bare and simple but magnificent testimony which the creatures bear to the glory of their Creator. For no sooner do we, from a survey of the world, obtain some slight knowledge of deity than we pass by the true God, and set up in his stead the dream and phantom of our own brain, drawing away the praise of justice, wisdom, and goodness from the fountainhead, and transferring it to some other quarter. Moreover, by the erroneous estimate we form, we either so obscure or pervert his daily works, as at once to rob them of their glory, and the author of them of his just praise. End of section 11